0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at
1: Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info.
2: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. After fighting ISIS in Iraq, Navy SEAL Edward Gallagher was named top platoon leader in SEAL Team 7 and nominated for the military's third highest honor. Now the Navy has charged the Special Operations Chief, who served in combat deployments for 19 years, with war crimes, among them murder. Gallagher denies all charges. When New York Times national correspondent Dave Phillips began reporting the story, he thought Gallagher must have suffered some kind of psychotic break as the result of many deployments. But what Phillips has found through interviews and military documents defied expectations. Dave Phillips joins me now on the line from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Dave, thanks for joining us.
3: Happy to be here. Thanks.
2: So who is Eddie Gallagher?
3: Even amongst the SEALs, who are an elite group of people, he was uh, one of the top. A uh, 19-year career that was sprinkled with all sorts of uh, awards for valor and good leadership he was a medic a sniper and explosives expert uh knew almost everything there was about being an elite warrior and and for years was also an instructor at the seals training school which is called buds so he was a person with a with a huge personality and he was a, a legend within the SEALs, highly respected
2: what kind of charges does he face now
3: Uh, boy, a host of charges. Um, The big one is premeditated murder. Uh, Also, a couple of of attempted murders, obstruction of justice, uh, drug possession. There had been a couple of of, um, uh, smaller charges for allegedly taking photos and video of of one of the men that he killed. Uh, Those were dropped. But if he's convicted just of the murder, he's facing uh, life in prison.
2: Who's brought these charges against him?
3: So that's what's interesting. Uh, The SEALs is a really closed group of people, um, and we know very little about them um, as as journalists. But uh, the charges were brought by his own men. He was a platoon leader in charge of about 20 other SEALs. And what they saw on their most recent deployment to uh, Mosul, Iraq, where they were helping to clear ISIS fighters out of the city, uh, you know, they, they said was murder, and they came home and, and very clearly said that to their chain of command.
2: Specific cases of murder. That's right. Well, so when you first learned about the charges, you tried to interview some of these, what, seven commandos, I think, brought the charges?
3: Uh, yes, about that many. Did they talk? No, none of them talked, uh, which is not uncommon. I, I, even if SEALs are not involved in a murder investigation, uh, their culture is not one where, while they're actively serving, they, they talk about it or even admit they exist. Um, and then, um, you know, add in that now their own chief is getting investigated, and that makes things uh, really sensitive.
2: And Gallagher's family, on the other hand, has been outspoken about his record. You even interviewed some of them, but let's listen to one. This is Eddie Gallagher's brother Sean on Fox News.
4: If you were to literally create or imagine what a modern-day war hero would be, it'd be Eddie. Uh, Now, he's just like any other special operator. He's humble. He would say that I'm just like the rest of the guys, but even among his peers, he stands out.
2: Sean Gallagher went on to call the charges against his brother fake news, and you, David, spoke with his family. What did they tell you?
4: I was really
3: hoping that that they would speak to me, and lucky enough that they did, because I wanted to understand more about... His time in the SEALs leading up to when things allegedly went wrong, you know, had he been uh, wounded in some way, had he been um, treated for post-traumatic stress disorder, were there warning signs along the way that maybe here was a guy who after you know, numerous combat deployments was wearing out? And what was interesting is his wife said, you know, emphatically, no. Mm-hmm. You know, Eddie is a total professional. Uh, he is used to this type of stuff. He, he thrives on it. You know, um, he knew exactly what he's doing. And she said, essentially, I've, I've never seen any signs of any sort of injury like that. And what she said really startled me. You know, I was looking for an explanation of then how this could happen. And she said, it didn't happen. Uh, What happened is that Eddie Gallagher is such a demanding uh, boss, a man with such high standards, that the the men serving under him in in Iraq didn't like him, uh, couldn't meet his standards. And so they started concocting a plan to uh, get him out. They figured if we can make allegations against him, he'll be removed. And she said that's what happened. Essentially, this is all lies made up by the men who serve under him.
2: Well, you filled a lot of that information out by obtaining more than 400 pages of confidential documents from the Navy's criminal investigation. What did that report include? And I'm wondering about specifics. When you talk about premeditated murder, did he assassinate someone without an order from the top?
3: Yeah. Um, So this was sort of unprecedented because within this report is is summaries of interviews with uh, more than a dozen SEALs. So we were able to hear the SEALs we weren't able to speak to. And... What comes out is they say that he, he repeatedly showed just complete disregard for both the men in the platoon and civilians in the city. He would uh, spray neighborhoods with heavy machine gun fire with, with no apparent targets. He would fire shoulder-launched rockets into houses for no clear reason. Uh, and there were specific cases where they say he killed people in cold blood, mm. uh, specifically uh, three instances – uh, in two of them, he spent a lot of time uh, in a hidden sniper nest where he would shoot targets in the city. And other snipers said that, that at times he also shot uh, a young unarmed girl uh, and an old man um, uh, and killed them. Mm. And then the last one, the one that he faces premeditated murder charges for, is a stabbing. Um, and that is a case where there had been a firefight. Um, Iraqi troops brought in a ISIS fighter who was probably somewhere between 14 and 17 years old. This fighter had been wounded in the fight but was still conscious, and the SEALs started uh, rendering uh, medical aid to him, as is expected in in their rules of engagement. Um, uh, He's lying on the ground getting medical aid from a medic and a couple other SEALs when the SEALs say uh, Chief Gallagher came over and stabbed this fighter in the neck and torso and killed him. And so he's facing charges of of premeditated murder for that captive's death.
2: We're learning from Dave Phillips. He covers military and veteran affairs for The New York Times about the case of Navy SEAL Special Operations Chief Eddie Gallagher, whom the Navy has charged with war crimes. And those are grave Charges indeed. But what did these documents reveal about the internal process for investigating these types of allegations? I understand those who brought the charges initially got a lot of pushback and were told do not talk about this.
3: You know, I think for me, as somebody who's reported on the military for years, this was the most eye-opening thing, the type of thing that, that normally is is extremely difficult to report because these these communities are so insular. Uh, so within this, this uh, trove of documents, yes, the SEALs who are interviewed all talk about how they uh, witnessed their chief uh, stab this this isis captive or how they witnessed him shooting up neighborhoods and and shooting at civilians but they also talk about how they tried to report it first they tried to report it to their immediate officer the guy who's just in charge of the platoon and they were kind of brushed off I, what they tell us is is uh... they told investigators uh, he responded, yeah, okay, I'll take care of it. But but after months, they realized that, that he wasn't taking care of it at all. And so they hoped that when they got home from this deployment in, in late 2017, they could take it up with the next level of chain of command. And there they did the same thing. They, they said, here are the things we saw. though This guy is a real problem. We need you to do something. Same type of response. Okay, we'll take care of it, but don't report this, this farther up. And Uh, They got frustrated because over months uh, they realized that no one was taking care of anything. What they saw is that their chief seemed to be uh, being allowed to get away with with what they say was murder. And they went back repeatedly to their chain of command and, and were told, you know, hey, just don't worry about it or decompress. They were warned, this could ruin your careers and take down a lot of other SEALs. Uh, now, here's what we don't know. What we can't tell from the documents is the tenor of this. Is the leadership worried because they think this whole thing is going to blow up in the faces of young SEALs, and they're trying to protect these guys so they can go on and have a, a career and live their lives? Or are they trying to protect someone who is, is a beloved and well-known peer? Mm. Uh, that's unclear. But certainly what the SEALs who tried to report this say to investigators is is they left with the impression that they were supposed to stop talking about it.
2: Yeah, Chief Gallagher does go on trial in May, and you wrote in The Times that the outcome is anything but clear. Gallagher's family has attempted to discredit the younger Navy SEALs who reported him the charges, and the Navy prosecutors who have brought them as well. Gallagher's brother, Sean, again, uh, also said the case has created a morale issue for the military. Here's what he told Fox News.
4: This is ripping the military community apart. This is a morale issue. Oh, yeah, They're looking at this and saying, well, if it can happen to Eddie with his service yeah. record, it can happen to me.
2: Well, this is uh, that big question here. The, the Navy SEALs, of course, this elite force have done amazing work in the theater of war, but their reputation has been somewhat tarnished in past years. What do you think is going on there? And, and tell us a little bit about those cases and how morale is now in this, in this fighting force.
3: Well, there have been a handful of high-profile cases where Navy SEALs are getting uh, investigated for theft, for drug use, for uh, illegal deaths, uh, for murder um and that has caused the leadership to to publicly announce hey we're going to step back and we're going to look at culture we're going to look at training because we think there's a problem here and what what uh, Seals have told me is there sort of a tension within this community. This is a, a community of, of Navy personnel that view themselves as very much outside of the Navy. They do something different. They they work by their own rules, and to some extent, there's a subculture in there who who are called the pirates, who. Uh, feel like they need to be a little bit above the rules because they do a dirty job that no one else can do. And there's there's a swagger and a respect uh, afforded to guys who are in that subculture in the SEALs. You know, They're seen as the bad boys who are going to get stuff done. And there's another side uh, within the SEALs that says, no, that's really dangerous. That's a slippery slope, and it's not who we are. We, we are a an organization that needs to, by the very nature of our work, uh, uh, follow rules very closely. And there is a clash that I think we see playing out here. You know, uh, uh, People described Eddie Gallagher to me as a bit of a pirate, and obviously the men who, who uh, turned him in didn't feel like he was, was acting as he should. Uh, now, those men have have received a lot of blowback in the SEAL community, both active duty and veterans. I think to some, they're seen as traitors. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're seeing this fight play out of, of what is the duty of a SEAL? Is it to obey the letter of the law or is it to stand by the other men that they went to war with?
2: Um, Dave, we're going to be speaking with a clinician in just a minute. And I know we have to let you go in a couple of minutes, but hope you'll hang on with us. You mentioned PTSD and Gallagher's wife telling you that PTSD was not a factor. And we, but you know, you recently reported that the military wants better tests for PTSD. What kind of options are being explored? And I'm sorry, we have just 30 seconds. We can pick this up after.
3: Yeah, I, you know, um, there's all sorts of options. It used to be you had to talk to people to figure out if they had PTSD as psychologists. Now we're starting to look at. Actual laboratory test that might be able to give, you know, a positive result so that they can get
2: treatment. That's New York Times national correspondent Dave Phillips covering military and veterans' affairs. Please stay with us for just a moment. We're going to be back with Liza Zweibeck. She's in the studio to help us understand more about PTSD. She's associate clinical director at Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Any thoughts, join our Facebook conversation. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We'll be back. We are back with On Second Thought from GPBM I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia is home to hundreds of thousands of military veterans and boasts tens of thousands of active duty and reserve personnel, and with those numbers often comes four letters, PTSD. Well, later in the show, we're going to talk about a play about how the effects of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, play out in one couple. Symptoms range from nightmares to those as severe as suicidal thoughts. But first, we've got Dave Phillips still with us. He covers military and veterans affairs for the New York Times. Liza Zwieback is with us in the studio to help us understand more about PTSD. She is Associate Clinical Director at the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. Hello, Liza. Hi. All right, Dave, I just want to, I know we have just a couple minutes with you, so I want to pick up on what we were talking about earlier. The Navy was sued last year over alleged discrimination against veterans with PTSD by the Naval Discharge Review Board. This board rejects nearly 85% of requests from upgraded benefits relating to PTSD. This is compared with 45% in the army. So what came of this case?
3: <laughs> you got me, you got me on that one. So there's been a there's been a real problem with these boards in in looking at PTSD and and approving it. And I I think it underlies a bigger issue is that that the military and the VA have a, a a real difficult time saying what is PTSD and what is not definitively. Yeah, like, and there are people, patients who will downplay their symptoms and there are people who will exaggerate their symptoms for various reasons. And so it leaves clinicians and the government who I, I think probably want to do a decent job of defining this kind of in the dark.
2: Lisa, Eliza's, uh, uh, she's nodding her head here. What do you want to say?
5: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it is very hard, I think, to agree on uh, what is a PTSD diagnosis kind of from person to person. And I think it's very often the case um, that exact, exactly, excuse me, as being said um, that there may be disagreement um, in whether a particular person has PTSD or does not.
2: We're going to pick up with Liza in just a minute, but uh, Dave, before you go, I want to ask about your reporting you've done on some innovative treatments for PTSD. Last year, in fact, reporting on a new study that shows that the street drug ecstasy could be a promising treatment for PTSD. What's in that study?
3: Uh, so, uh, first let me just say don't go out and try ecstasy and think that it's going to work.
2: But Note point for, taken. For,
3: for years there has been, uh, uh, interest in the idea of guided therapy where oftentimes a uh, patient will have trouble accessing the, uh, events, thinking about the events understanding the events that are causing trauma. And so if you can flood their brain with, with chemicals that enable trust and well-being, which ecstasy does, then maybe you can allow them to see those, those facts and those emotions and, and try to process them. And so there have been experiments. They're now in, I believe, the, there's sort of their phase three trials for FDA approval to look at, okay, if we have therapists guiding people through this process, can it help? And what the data shows is it, it helps a lot. And and so you would take two, maybe three doses of this over several months, uh, and that would be it. It's not like taking a, a pill every day. And through those therapy sessions would hopefully recognize and begin to process things as part of a larger psychotherapy um Regimen.
2: So, in conjunction with therapy, the psychiatrist and the MacArthur Genius grant winner, Jonathan Shea, he said that PTSD doesn't encompass all of the challenges active military and veterans face in their recovery from trauma. He calls it moral injury, and that is his real concern. Here he
6: is. If it gets bad enough, especially in moral injury, as I define it, betrayal of what's right by someone with legitimate authority in a high-stakes situation. Then the character begins to change. One's social and moral horizon shrinks, sometimes just to oneself, or it shrinks to a tiny little circle. It might be just one squad.
2: Dave, how mainstream is this notion of moral injury?
3: think a lot of veterans have heard about it, and a lot of civilians have not. You know, But the point is really important that we use in the civilian world PTSD as sort of catch-all for the things that might affect someone during war. And I think that there's all sorts of, of things. PTSD is a, a small part of it. Um, and, and so treatment is probably much broader than just talking about PTSD. How do you give someone who's come back from combat, uh, a meaningful life once they have you know, maybe seen and done things that they, they can't abide by. And I, I think that's what Jonathan and Shea has thought a lot about, is, is we need to broaden how we think about this injury and how we're going to address it. And a lot of times that's a lot of stuff outside of the, the therapy office.
2: Dave Phillips, thank you so much for your time, and we'll be watching for your reporting on that case. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks for your time.
2: Dave Phillipsy's New York Times National Correspondent covering military and veteran affairs. Lisa, so back to you, this idea of the moral injury. Do you think that we do hear PTSD a lot and we hear about its symptoms? We know a lot more about the brain now, but is that idea of the moral injury that it is something we flatten things out when we say this is Mm -hmm. PTSD?
5: Yeah. So the term moral injury actually has been catching on quite a lot um, in recent years Um, and um, I think is very catchy for uh, lots of reasons. I think it captures a dimension that kind of, as you're saying, the sort of flat kind of abbreviation PTSD maybe doesn't seem to capture in people's minds. However, you know, you don't always get complete agreement on what moral injury is either, right? And um, to me, moral injury, really, a lot of it amounts to guilt and shame over one's actions, right, Um, in war. um, Also in, you know, in civilian cases where people experience trauma and develop PTSD, um, they will also have kind of what, you know, what some people might consider moral injury in terms of, you know, feeling guilt and shame, over having done something, over having you know not done something. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, that guilt and shame actually can be. Um, part of successful PTSD treatment. And so I'm a little bit less aligned with the idea that moral injury is something separate. Um, I think moral injury, you know, as as I I think people are conceptualizing it, has always been part of not only PTSD, but kind of PTSD treatment. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So guilt and shame are part of the
5: effects of PTSD? Yes, they are. They're actually symptoms of PTSD. So how do you treat that? That is a great question. Well, so, um, you know, I think particularly if we're talking about veterans, people who have um, acted in ways in the context of a you know of a war that don't necessarily comport with their own moral code, a lot of it comes down to contextualizing, right? And so this idea that um, we behave differently in a war zone mm-hmm. than we do in our in our normal lives. Um, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, of course, mm-hmm. but you know I think as the course of treatment unfolds, we kind of see. Um, You know, our our patients sort of unpacking and exploring their memories of what happened and kind of, being able to incorporate more of the context of what was going on and what actually may have contributed mm-hmm. to their acting in the way that they did and a- rather as
2: Jonathan Chase said you have legitimate authority a high-stakes situation somebody's telling you this is okay in fact this is what you have to do
5: mm-hmm. yes exactly
2: well what is going on? PTSD symptoms can include anxiety nightmares flashbacks what triggers those mental and emotional reactions what's happening inside of the brain
5: uh, yeah that's a great question well so um, so that we all respond as humans um, to threat in a particular way, um, which is to say that the amygdala in the brain is sort of the oversensitive alarm system. Um, and then it, and it is designed to react kind of quickly, but not necessarily precisely.
2: Is that like the fight or flight? Yes, place? exactly.
5: Exactly. And um, but then we also have the prefrontal cortex, which acts more slowly, um, but more accurately, right, and is able to kind of jump in and mediate and interpret what Going on, and, and you know, an example I would give is you're you're walking along and you see a stick on the ground, and it, for a second you say to yourself it's a snake, and your body kind of reacts in a way uh, that looks like a fear response, and then you know the kind of the prefrontal cortex part of your brain jumps in and says no, it's a stick, it's fine, carry on. Um, so that's the way that we are, you know, built to respond. Uh, the person with PTSD will have more activation in the amygdala. So studies have shown there's sort of more activation in the amygdala, the the fight or flight. Um, piece, um, and less activation or under activation of the prefrontal cortex. And so the world kind of seems more dangerous mm-hmm. to the person with PTSD than it might actually be.
2: So they're seeing a lot more snakes or that yes. stick stays a snake a lot longer?
5: Oh, that's, I, I might say both, actually. I mm-hmm. would say there's just kind of like an over-attunement to
2: the presence of threat and danger in the world. So you said that the body feels this. What mm-hmm. are the effects on the body of PTSD?
5: Mm. Um, there is, um, so, so I will say it's, you know, I, I, I myself am not an expert on the effects on the body. I'll just kind of talk a little bit basically about how um, the body is not meant to be constantly in fight or flight. You know, fight or flight is meant to be a really momentary kind of life-saving um, adaptive response. The person with PTSD spends more of their time in fight or flight than is optimal, right? And so a lot of stress hormones are flooding the body more than is ideal, and that tends to have, I'm just going to speak broadly, kind of long-lasting effects um, on the organs, on the heart, so on and so forth, on just kind of overall um, adaptive functioning.
2: So we talked a little bit about Jonathan Chase, the idea of the moral injury. And part of the things that he talks about is that what is one of the ways to counter that is the support from peers. Let's just hear a little bit of that
6: credentialed mental health professionals like me, in my view, have no place in center stage. It's the veterans themselves healing each other that belong in center stage. We're stagehands. Get the lights on, sweep out the gum wrappers, count the chairs, make sure it's a safe and warm enough place
2: Now I'm not treating him as a clinician but I'm wondering about is that something you abide by this idea of creating a sense of comfort, a sense of warmth how do you how do you marry that kind of physical intimacy connection with the clinician's work
5: Yeah well so so one thing I will say um, the program that I work in Emory Healthcare Veterans program, one of the things that I think we have found is that we are administering treatment in kind of a cohort. And so I'm working individually with one person, but that person's also going through treatment in a stepwise fashion alongside other vets um, who are also receiving treatment. And there there are some groups um, that are part of our our program. And I I think there is a demonstrable effect of that support from their peers that they're getting that they wouldn't get, right? Just kind of coming to see a therapist once a week or something to that effect. So um, I'm not necessarily, I think... As on board with the idea that, you know, I'm a stagehand Mm -hmm. um, necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I think that both are important.
2: What would your role be in the whole production here?
5: You know, I think of myself in terms of the therapy that I do. I think I'm like a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm, um, you know, looking at my my folks with PTSD um, who have kind of let their lives be very narrowed. You know, they've kind of isolated themselves. Um, you know, they tend to avoid reminders. They tend to avoid crowds. They tend to avoid all of these things that f- that for most of us kind of are part of a full life. And so, a lot of what my role is is to help them actually get back into that full life by approaching the things that they've been avoiding.
2: Liza Zwiebach is with us. She's assistant clinic, associate clinical director at Emory Healthcare Veterans Program, so she's a lot of vets, treating PTSD, first responders, military members. These are all people trained to be in these high stress environments. Uh, so, what are some of the misconceptions we have about PTSD? It's a term we hear a lot.
5: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I heard—I think I heard you say before that um, there is a tendency to to kind of lump everything mm-hmm. um, into the the category, the umbrella of PTSD. That if somebody has a trauma history, then boom, they have PTSD. And that is not so. Uh, in fact, most people actually have a trauma history. Unfortunately, most people don't have PTSD. And so um, actually resilience is the rule versus the exception. Um, And so for a minority of folks who do experience something traumatic in their lifetime, they do go on to experience PTSD. But it's not as though just by virtue of having experienced something traumatic, a person develops any kind of psychiatric condition. Mm -hmm.
2: This is one of the interesting things to me. You just mentioned that, you know, a lot of people have trauma in their lives and there's multi generational trauma. You talked about how the brain operates in the amygdala with someone with PTSD. But I understand that that can actually be carried on those traits from generation to generation. What do we know about that?
5: yeah and and i I will say this it's a it's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. um but my understanding is that there's been a lot of really promising uh, research with animal models that suggest this kind of intergenerational transmission of the effects of trauma, which is really interesting. I think there's been some um some more theoretical work over the years um. Um, kind of s- suggesting those effects in humans with Holocaust survivors and their children
2: and successive
5: generations. Um, you know. But I think there's a lot more to be discovered
2: there. What is the most effective way to treat PTSD? Oh,
5: that's a great question. There are several very, very well-supported uh, methods for treating PTSD. So within the, the kind of the category of psychotherapy alone, um, there are, I would say, three empirically Supported treatments, evidence based treatments. Um, And the one that I do the most of is called prolonged exposure therapy. This is premised on the idea that, as I kind of mentioned before, people with PTSD tend to avoid things a lot. Mm -hmm. They avoid avoid things that remind them of a traumatic event, of their traumatic event, that is. They avoid things that feel unsafe, even though objectively they're not unsafe. Um, They avoid thinking and talking about their traumatic event from the past. And so what this avoidance does, unfortunately, even though it kind of works in the short term, really effectively it perpetuates the symptoms, it maintains them, never actually allows people to get back into their lives, as I was talking about before. And so prolonged exposure therapy really jumps off from that premise.
2: Okay. And then CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, do you work in that realm as well? Yes. And
5: prolonged exposure is sort of within that CBT umbrella.
2: Okay. And we mentioned, you know, actually Governor uh, Kemp, Brian Kemp in April signed the HOPE Act into law. This allows limited regulated production of medical cannabis oil. Some researchers think this drug and others like ecstasy and MDMA could help with PTSD. What does your research say? yeah um,
5: so so actually the MDMA piece is something that looks really promising and something that uh, my colleagues are starting to study and I, I I would definitely agree with the reporter who was speaking before about the way that this is is going to work it's not a long-term treatment it's not in other words people are not on MDMA mm-hmm, for any kind of prolonged period um, but that being on a, a, a dose of it one or two times kind of has this persistent effect Um Cannabis and cannabis oil, I think it's uh, a little less clear, kind of, uh, from my understanding, what the mechanisms would be. Um, one thing I will say, just with our patients, um, we actually prefer, and this gets a little controversial and a little difficult, we prefer that they not actually use Uh, cannabis because it gets in the way of learning these things that we need them to learn.
2: Liza Zwieback, thank you so much for speaking with us. I'm sorry you can't stick around to analyze the, the folks in the play that we're going to be speaking with in just a minute. Thank you for your time. Thank you. She's Associate Clinical Director at Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. We're back with On Second Thought. This is Georgia Public Broadcasting, and I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier in the show, we talked about the insular culture of Navy SEALs. And you've probably heard about some of the heroic deeds carried out by this elite fighting force, killing Osama bin Laden or taking out the Somali pirates who hijacked Captain Mark Phillips' ship what would it be like to live with one? We hear plenty of stories about the sacrifices military spouses make, wives, in the case of Navy SEALs, but the wife's perspective is rarely at the center. The Hero's Wife is a play ending its run at the Synchronicity Theater in Atlanta this weekend, and it's an intimate look at how a couple deals with the invisible wounds of combat. Rebecca Robles plays Carissa, the young wife of retired Navy SEAL Cameron, played by Joe Sykes, and Rachel May directed the play, and they are all here with us this morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for being here. Rachel, I want to ask you about the origins of the play. It was written by Aline Lathrop. And I guess she read about a Navy SEAL and this inspired it all. Yeah, she read an article
0: called, uh, The Man Who Shot Osama Bin Laden Was Screwed. (laughs) And it was, uh, you know, we had all lauded SEAL Team 6, and uh, this article was about the man who ostensibly could have been the one who actually pulled the trigger on that shot. And He had no health insurance. He was now out of the service. He had not gotten his pension or his benefits. And there was some question as to why he left at 19 years, a year before that would have all happened. And it really talked about how, as a veteran, who was one of the most lauded veterans of all time in our country, was now sort of left out in the cold and didn't really have anything.
2: Yeah, these are people who are just often held up on pedestals, men used to being uh, in the company of men, their strength, capacity, a lot of machismo. Joe, how did you, as an actor, embody that kind of backstory?
4: Oh, a lot of push-ups to begin with, <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit of creatine. Uh, but no, I, um, <laughs> I I have one buddy at work who is this Army vet, and he told me about his experiences, and I actually had him read the pay, play, mm-hmm. and he said everything that's going on is spot-on to what happens to people when they come back. Uh, the Depression of not being able to leave your house because you're scared that something horrible will happen to you that that bubble of security that we all have in our society it goes away when you experience that trauma and it's hard to come back to it uh and the anxiety of like going out to a bar and and being like there's too many too much noise Mm -hmm. too many people uh and so uh, talking to him was something that was really good uh just learning about ptsd was 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 fascinating and, and very sad and something that was easy for me to you know Glam onto and and sort of try to embody in this character. Yeah,
2: yeah. and and he, there is a time you know. Uh, there's a point when Carissa's trying to get him to go out, but he's like, well eh, this is too noisy out there." This this is all set pretty much inside the walls of this home. There's you know a couple of little scenes outside. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca, you are carrying this kind of center role of Rebecca of of Carissa rather. She doesn't have the experience of other other good Navy SEAL wives. <laughs> I think uh, at one point. Um, Cam calls her. She has no kids. She's really young and in her 20s. And really, they haven't known each other that long. Mm -hmm. Have they
1: figured out how to communicate? No. (laughs) No. I mean, she's trying very hard. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we were reading articles about, you know, what it is to be a Navy SEAL wife and what that's like and Carissa doesn't have that she's she's new to this whole thing you know so she's this is her first time dealing with some you know with her husband coming back from war um and he's he's changed which is interesting cuz he's done it a lot but she can even tell that this time was different
2: yeah they haven't known each other that long what was their courtship like Eight weeks is a respectable courtship. <laughs> the, line from the
4: show
2: everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of their communication is while he's deployed is on Skype. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of remove. And yeah. then he's back in the house. Mm-hmm. And it's all very, very real. And it's a deeply intimate play in many ways. Um, so for you, that domestic life, you know, they're talking about making dinner, wanting him to go out. He wants to stay home they're playful they're sexy they're charming at one point now Carissa is a yoga instructor they do yoga together we're just going to hear a little scene from that
1: you don't know that one? can't because you do yoga in the seals of course
4: we do yoga in the seals obviously more advanced than the rest of you come on downward facing platypus (laughs) you're not supposed to laugh at your instructor oh
1: do I have to give you 10? you don't want to
4: know if you have to give me I'll let this one slide downward
2: facing Platypus. So there's so much going on in this little scene. You want to
1: describe it for us, for the audience? <laughs> yeah, so coming into this scene, uh, Chris had had a bad night before. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know how much I can say, but um, he had one of his... We'll talk about the bad night. <laughs> okay, yeah, Cam, Cam had one of his night terrors, and um, my character Chris is choosing not to talk about it because she doesn't want to make, make things worse, really. Um, she just wants him to, to adjust to being home. Um, so, But she had a bad night, and so she's a little bit thrown off and... and Cam is being his charming self and trying to figure out what's going on and warm her back up and he does it very successfully yeah. by, um, you know, he doesn't know yoga. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so by just being silly. But Daytime it, Cam
4: is very charming. Yeah,
2: yeah, well, okay, so that's the thing. You know, there's like, <clears throat> this there is a night and day difference yeah. here. And Rachel, I'm wondering like how you approach that as a director, showing this, like, you know, there's a, kind of beautiful little warmth between them during the day although it gets it changes and then at night things just change
0: yeah that's what drew me to the play is that it really ricochets between this daytime life and nighttime life Um, and the nights are brutal and uh, dangerous and Cam is doing things that he doesn't know he's doing Mm -hmm. and uh, Carissa has a choice she said you know she has to decide am I going to tell him where the danger is he might kill himself out of guilt or something else might happen or can I find a way to get strong enough to meet him where he is in his brokenness Mm -hmm. and then find a way for us to get through this? And she works through and chooses the latter, which is a really powerful choice. And we see her strength grow throughout. So we really wanted the warmth and the heat and the sexiness and the intimacy to be at its absolute best. And we also wanted the violence to be at its absolute best so we had both an intimacy director and a fight director on the show who worked on both of those areas and started from the audition process of creating a process of consent between the actors where they were constantly checking in with each other as we were working through to make sure that what we were doing was comfortable and safe and they these two actors are remarkable in the show but they also in the rehearsal process were so good and careful at taking care of each other both emotionally and physically as we worked through that Mm -hmm. um, which is really essential for for them to do this 85 minute really powerful and amazing
2: piece it is breathless uh, on some level (laughs) i mean it just keeps going and going and going there are just Mm -hmm. a series of scenes uh, and i think there was something in the stage direction about that you know you may you may feel the tendency to want to pause but don't yes mm-hmm. and we don't
4: yeah to <laughs> <probably> never stop <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I, I would love to ask more about the, the you know the violence coach the intimacy coach because so he flails at night. And, yeah. and, you know, he's a powerful, he's a jacked guy. And you're a jacked guy is what I am <laughs> really mean to say, <laughs> Joe. Um, but, but that's terrifying for Carissa. And I wonder what was that was like for you as an actor, Rebecca.
1: Dealing with those scenes? Yeah. Actually fun. I mean, <laughs> I enjoy uh, fight choreography. Uh-huh. Um, but no, it, it is scary, like living through it. In, in the situation of it, it it is it's not hard to act because it is scary mm-hmm. you know having having somebody throw you around and grab you by the neck and all all of that it's it makes it easy to do my job because because it's happening I mean mm-hmm. it's very safe and I trust Joe completely yeah. but and you start
2: to try mm-hmm. and interact with him in his in his yes. nightmares yeah and, she and starts
1: and to kind of test things out a little bit take it in, she's taking it into her own hands and yeah yeah and yeah. she becomes a bit
0: of an investigator right because she she figures out we won't tell too much about it but she figures out a way to where she thinks can control it mm-hmm. and so she does try to start sparking these events so that she can learn what's going mm-hmm. on in his head she's because, really interested in because finding he won't out. tell
1: her anything but, but right.
2: why why, yeah. why don't you tell him you know you don't tell him i'm sorry you carissa <laughs> <laughs> why doesn't carissa tell him what's happening because she she shields him from it
1: she does and it's, it's a good question um she, I think she she chooses not to to protect him. I think she knows he's not going to handle it well. Like despite him being, you know, a professional fighter and and being more mature and older than her in all these ways, she can also see that brokenness in him. Mm. And I think she knows he's not going to handle it very well. That
4: would destroy him, huh? Yeah. yeah. And, and Cam, the only thing of any value in his life is Carissa. He places her on a pedestal almost, and. And he would do anything for her. And for him to think that he is hurting her, well, he would just turn it on him. He would destroy himself if he found mm-hmm. out that he was hurting her.
2: Well, there's so much on display and there's so much that's concealed here. You know, that, that, mm-hmm. that he, they'll wake up in the morning and she's trying to act normal, like everything's <laughs> fine. Uh, and he doesn't tell him what's going on at night. I'm wondering what that's like, you know, to sort of contain that quiet inside of inside of the characters. How did you work with them on that, Rachel?
0: Yeah, well, as we heard earlier in this in this segment, um, you know, this whole code of silence and the silent professionals is yeah. very much a code in the military in general, but in the SEALs very particularly. And the play has a few of those lines where Cam says, you don't ask, and silent professionals. And I think these wives are really used to having them having the the men come back and not hearing anything and their role when they're doing their skype calls is to say everything's fine the house is good everything's Mm -hmm. great We we read a bunch of articles about um seals who came back from deployment And they got back at a different time than was expected. And the women had it, the the wives sort of had it planned. They were going to get their hair done. The house was perfect. The baby was going to nap so that when they got to pick him up. But then he got in two hours early and they have to show up with no makeup on. The baby's screaming because they didn't get their nap. And that's not what they want to do. The wives want to present that everything's been fine and that they were not stressed Mm -hmm. by this deployment. But as Rebecca said, Carissa didn't have that practice. This is her first go at it um, yeah. So, but she's still trying that she's still trying to do all of those things to make it sort of perfect for him so she's doing just as much to
2: contain it as he is with containing what his experience was. That's Rachel May. She's director of the play The Hero's Wife. It's running the, through this weekend at the City Theater in Atlanta. Rebecca Robles is with us. She plays Carissa, the young wife of retired Navy SEAL Cameron, who is played by Joe Sykes, who is also with us. Well, she becomes this sort of cheerleader. There's another scene in the play. You know, uh, she 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 wants to make him marketable. <laughs> she wants to help him mm-hmm. put his skills to work. Let's hear just a little bit of that.
1: Other
4: skills, sharpshooting. Okay, uh, not sure how to capture
1: that. How about jumping out
4: of planes, sneaking up on ships? Uh, let's
1: say athletic.
4: This was a stupid no, idea. No, uh, athletic is good. Uh,
1: let's just move on to your objective. My objective, babe, you could do anything.
4: You
2: could do anything. How does how does he feel? How does he feel in this new world?
4: Well, his skill set of a warrior, it doesn't apply yeah. in in the community that he's in now, and that's something. This low self-esteem where you, uh, in this most dangerous place in the world, you were powerful and in control and you knew your role and how to accomplish your goal. But now uh, it's like learning how to tie your shoes, being back in society. You don't know how to do it. Don't worry, folks, I can tie my shoes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's low self-esteem and a lack of value. Mm. That is something that talking to my army buddy. He was saying that's something that's real for veterans.
2: Yeah. And, and, and it's part of the attraction. I mean, they meet. They talk about how they met and there's mm-hmm. you know, this mm-hmm. beautiful scene that they evoke. And he basically jumps out of a plane <laughs> and he looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the attraction. So it's her attraction to him. It's very gla- It's hot. Mm-hmm. And maybe his attraction to himself on some level. So she's trying to, what, make him feel what?
1: That he's still that that he still has value, even though he's not what he he's not doing what he he's done for his whole life, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you know, Krissa sees all this potential in him, um, but he doesn't see it in himself. So and
2: she wants to fix him,
1: yeah. She's, yeah, but, yeah.
2: but 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 there's something else. There's a transformation going on within her. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate that? From uh, you know the fresh wife, your your husband's back home to to. Deepening that resilience, as as Rachel called it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that it's taken a while to figure out, <laughs> um, but I think it's just there's a building frustration uh, as we go along in the play of like this isn't working, this isn't working. Uh, she keeps hitting these walls, uh, and I think you just have you have to get to that. But she has to get to that point. There's no there's no other way. Mm-hmm. Especially when we get to a scene where it becomes very clear that. Um, telling him would mean that he would probably, you know, commit suicide. So yeah. she also takes on some of his techniques, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in the seals, it's
0: buds, not boot camp, right? And, mm-hmm. and Cam says we run with a boat on our head and buds. Like I mean, they literally like drown themselves. And I mean, the training is insane. And I think that Carissa tries a lot of her techniques and her tactics. I'm going to get his resume. I'm going to mm-hmm. give him self empowerment. I'm going to tell him I value him. I'm going to be loving to him and somewhere along the way she realizes that those techniques are only going to go so far and she also has to learn some of some of his techniques um and so i feel like it's her bud's training like we see her going through that strengthening and that mm-hmm. sort of what are some of the strong responses that she can use that will actually speak to him at at in, in the way that he thinks yeah. um i think sometimes this is a huge generalization but as women we we go for the more sort of encouraging loving this is how it's going to work and i think for cam particularly he's going to need a little bit more tough love in some instances and so she mm-hmm. she really
2: sort of learned some of those tactics right. from him it's an so adaptive he doesn't response. realize
0: he's training her but he,
2: he is yeah Well, this is something that Synchronicity has partnered on this play and in the past with United Military Care and Veterans Empowerment Organization, aiding in rehearsal process and also doing talkbacks. And I'm wondering what Mm -hmm. kind of things you've heard from the talkbacks. Do you guys want to talk about Sunday?
4: Oh, well, I mean, it was an honor. Uh, I I forget the gentleman. Tyler from
0: Veterans Empowerment Organization.
4: Yeah. I mean, when... It was the inside scoop so you get some ice cream and then we have a talk back <laughs> uh, and so i got my ice cream and the guy comes right up and shakes my hand and he's like this was really great and that's just an honor for for, for him to say that to me mm-hmm. um but in the audience uh like many people uh it was an older crowd on sunday but they were talking about their their parents who were in world war ii and how they would drink and they'd shoot that gun every once in a while and you wouldn't talk about it and that was back then and here we are now and so maybe we are making some advancements as far as a discussion a conversation being held uh but everyone said this is something that that that's that's around and needs to be discussed.
0: It was pretty fascinating how many people who worked on the show have direct family experiences. One of the people who worked on the show has a father who has hit her at night during one of these Mm -hmm. sorts of episodes, who's a veteran. One of the people on the show has a family member who walks outside the house at night drunk with a gun patrolling because of PTSD. And so, you know, just in our little 20 or so people who put the show together, we had a number of stories. Um, And yet... I don't think... Culturally, we talk about it very much. And I don't think we really want to know. I don't think we want to know what's happening in these families. I think we want to clap at the airport mm. when they walk through, and we want to cheer and be happy and say thank you for your service. But then we don't want to hear about it.
2: Well, it makes me think that also this is being acted out on theater where, you know, the ancient Greek tragedies about warriors coming home and their pain was was a part of that mm-hmm. was the cultural literacy of mm-hmm. the time. What do you think? Or is this a way of kind of carrying on that tradition? I think so. And and one of the things we've done a lot of shows at Synchronicity about
0: war and about veterans. And one of the things that has always guided me is we worked with a um, psychiatrist who works with veterans years ago, and she said, you know, that in other cultures there is a ritual for the warriors to lay down their warrior spirit when they come home from war. They go away from their families for several days, and they lay down that spirit. <sighs> and that in our culture we don't have that. Literally, they get off the plane. Their kids jump on them and hug them and then the next day there's a family barbecue to celebrate them being back and they're expected to be at the grill. And I don't think that's reasonable and I don't think that is serving the men and women who are doing this for our country and who are protecting us and who are going through the ultimate sacrifice for us. And um, I think this play is really trying to show the very personal story that that's behind that and, and hopefully... Um, engender some empathy and compassion for those families and help us all think about that a little more.
2: Rachel May, she's director of the play The Hero's Wife. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And also with us, Joe Sykes. He plays Cam. Thank you for being with us.
4: You're welcome. Thanks and for
2: And Rebecca me. Robles, The Hero's Wife. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the play is running into, uh, through this weekend at Synchronicity Theater. You can find more on it at gpbnews.org.